Welcome to another episode of In the Course of Human Events, a podcast drawn from the world of Thomas Jefferson, the larger Monticello community, and the life of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation. Today, we share a special episode from another remarkable podcast series, Your Most Obedient and Humble Servant, which showcases women's letters from the 18th and early 19th century that don't always make it into the history books. In this installment, former Monticello guide Catherine Garrett is joined by longtime Monticello guide Dana Kelly for an entertaining look at Jefferson's granddaughter, Ellen Wales Randolph. Their conversation centers on a letter she wrote to her mother, Martha Jefferson Randolph, while visiting Richmond, Virginia in 1819. In the letter, Ellen, then 23, describes herself as a person whose tongue runs faster than is quite compatible with the comfort of my friends, and then proves the point with language that is often as withering as it is engaging. We hope you'll enjoy this crossover episode. And without further ado, in the course of human events and your most obedient and humble servant present, That Evil Genius. Hello, and welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Catherine Garrett. This week, I'm joined by a good friend of mine, a Monticello interpreter and house tour supervisor, Dana Kelly. Hi, Dana. Hi, Katie. Happy to be here. When did you first begin working at Monticello and what made you want to work there? I clearly remember because it was the week of Mardi Gras, so it's February in 2005, so that's almost 17 years ago. I think I was destined to work there because I was one of those kids, as you may have been as well, given the choice between a vacation in Disney World and Colonial Williamsburg, I would have picked Colonial Williamsburg. (laughs) You know, I was just always fascinated and sort of by traveling in time, going back in time, going to historic sites, reading books. And we did go to Williamsburg when I was a kid while I was reading my favorite book, which was Johnny Tremaine. (laughs) Wow. Having been on many of your tours, you're an excellent tour guide. What's something that you want people to take away with them after going on one of your tours? Lately, I've really thought about this a lot myself, and I hope my visitors leave with a sense of the gravity and the importance of the events in 1776 and how Jefferson and his contemporaries, the movement they initiated away from monarchy and toward self-government circles the globe. I mean, it was, it was a sea change. Don't you think? I mean, it was was big. This was a very big deal that we sometimes take for granted. And um, as you know, Monticello is a plantation. So I certainly want visitors to think about the big picture and the difficult history and the paradox of, you know, the promise of the young republic, but also the cruelty of the institution of of slavery, the reality of that as well, not just at Monticello, but in the very sort of the very DNA of our founding documents and and the birth of our nation. And I guess after all this difficult history, I want them to leave with a sense of hope (laughs) and optimism I think Jefferson would approve, don't you? He was the eternal optimist who, who said he liked the dreams of the future better than the history of the past. So lately I've been finishing with lines from this letter he wrote when he was 73. He wrote, laws and institutions must go hand in hand with the progress of the human mind. He said, as new truths are disclosed, manners and opinions change. 
institutions must advance also and keep pace with the times. So that's a lot. I don't know if they leave with any of that. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm very excited to talk about this letter with you. As guides at Monticello, we become pretty familiar with Jefferson and his family and the grandchildren in particular. So this is yet another Ellen Wales Randolph Coolidge letter. I featured several of them on the podcast, but this one was just so good. This is a letter from March 1819 from Ellen Wales Randolph. She's not married yet. She's 23 years old at this time. And she's writing to her mother, Martha Jefferson Randolph, who at this point is 47 years old and is at Monticello. So Ellen is at this point visiting one of her many aunts, Harriet Randolph Hackley, who uh, I figured, I think she's 36 at this point. Okay. Who is running a school in Richmond. This is Ellen sort of visiting Richmond for the social season as she does, but she's staying with her aunt Hackley, as opposed to some of the other family members that she could choose to stay with. I don't know if you know this, Katie, but I'm wondering, is this a, it's a school for girls, obviously, of all ages, or do you think they're teenagers or? I think they're, they're probably teenagers, right? Like 11 to. Okay. Yeah. All right. So this is a fairly long letter, but I think the best thing to do would just be to read through it and then we can talk through it at the end. Ellen Wales Randolph to Martha Jefferson Randolph, 29 March, 1819. I have written so lately and so often, my dear mother, that if I were like other people, I should have nothing more to say. But my pen, like my tongue, runs faster than is quite compatible with the comfort of my friends. From your complaining of not hearing from me, I conclude that my letters must miscarry. For in three weeks that I have been here, I have written 10 times to the different members of my family. I have recorded everything that could possibly interest, and I fear a great deal that could not interest them. And yet I get no credit for my exertions. Aunt Hackley is still confined to her bed, but is able to set up in her easy chair 10 or 15 minutes at a time. Her complaint appears to be debility. She is in good spirits and receives a great many visitors. To answer your questions about the school, or rather about the scholars, I have not perceived much of that illiberal spirit of which you speak. At least it does not appear to be exercised against me. The girls do not seem inclined to get acquainted with me, but I believe this proceeds merely from the shyness which boarding school misses generally feel towards grown women who cannot enter into their sports or take part in the chit-chat which amuses them. I felt inclined to conciliate those girls who were thrown more immediately in my way, but there does not seem to be a single point of contact. The want of subjects for conversation is a difficulty not to be gotten over. Of books, except their school books, they either know nothing or are afraid to speak, and we have no mutual acquaintances. I think the school under very good regulations. There is more order than I could have expected in so large an establishment. I have not seen the least appearance of ill humor or heard any squabbling since my arrival, and this in a school of 57 girls, of whom 40 are boarders. Aunt Hackley tells me that I see the school under great disadvantages, as her presence is necessary for the maintenance of the perfect order for which she requires. Of this, I have no doubt and it only increases my admiration of the spirit of the method and the genius for government, which has always distinguished her since from her sickbed, she maintains an exactness of discipline, which others would find difficult in full health and spirits. Her assistants are excellent as assistants, but by no means capable of keeping up the necessary authority without her presiding power. Among the girls, I see no one whose society would be of much value. I suppose that in the school, there is the usual quantum of intelligence and stupidity, but the first not sufficiently developed to offer any great resources. 
Eliza Woodward, the first assistant, is extremely valuable to Aunt H. She possesses good sense and piety, and under the master hand performs her functions, as well as they could be performed. But she is uninteresting in manners and conversation. Conversation, I should not say, for she seldom speaks, but in monosyllables. She is a saint, no doubt, and saints are the most tiresome people in the world. I like her sister Maria better. She will not stand so high among evangelical people, for she seems to have an aspiration after the good things of this world. Although cheerful and attentive in the performance of her duties, is not without some proneness to the vanities of the worldly-minded. I believe it is this approach to something of my own nature that gives me a predilection in her favor. In associating with her, I have not the same fear of mingling strange fires with the fires of heaven. Martha, the third sister, I should have pronounced hopelessly stupid or sullen, but I am told she is neither. So how to account for her obstinate and amiable silence, I know not. Virginia Heth, an insipid beauty, is as lifeless in her manners as in her person. I believe I like Elizabeth Pickett better than any girl in the school. She makes me laugh, and that is a great point gained. Some of the girls have shown me a little attentions that give me pleasure. They bring me flowers and take such opportunities of obliging me as fall in their way. This manifests a friendly feeling, and it is always gratifying to be the object of such a feeling. You must not imagine from what I have said that I suffer at all from ennui. I read, write, work, and walk alternately, whilst an occasional visit to the other hill keeps up my intercourse with the fashionable world. I went the other day to Colonel Nicholas's, intending to return home in the evening, but tempted by a gay party and a pleasant walk, I decided to drink tea where I was and spend the night at Aunt Randolph's. I counted on Captain Peyton's attendance, but he, not knowing the need in which I stood of his services, went away early and left me to ask the escort of either Francis Gilmer or Colonel Robert Nicholas. In this dilemma, I chose the least evil, the man whom I had once known, to the utter stranger, and accepting his offered arm, we walked, after ten o'clock at night, in darkness, and almost in silence, to Aunt R's door, where, seeing me safely housed, he made his bow and retired. His conduct towards me is marked with such utter indifference that I begin to think that time has removed every feeling even of resentment, or that, at any rate, if he has unfriendly feelings towards me, they are rather passive than active. Aunt Randolph is in the midst of hurry and bustle. Yesterday, she entertained her boarders for the last time, and today she is preparing for a sale of her furniture, which is to take place tomorrow. The day after, she removes to Dr. Watson's, where she will remain until she can wind up her business and leave Richmond. But as she has many visits to pay in the lower country, it will be the month of May before she reaches Albemarle. I fear this is a very unfavorable time for a sale of her furniture. The distress for money is almost universal. The merchants are tottering or falling and involving many in their ruin. Jack Page, and I never knew until lately that he was engaged in commerce, if he has not failed, is in great danger. There is a report today that Mr. Richardson, the son-in-law of Mr. Pollard, is gone. I fear Aunt Randolph will be grievously disappointed. Her expectations are too high. She talks of $5,000 for furniture, which is all secondhand. And although she says that in the present state of things, she does not calculate on more than half of that sum, I suspect that even there she will be disappointed. I have written, as usual, in the midst of confusion. If the girls come down, my dear mama, send me some of the dresses that I left to make presents of to the servants. My purple striped gingham, I do not recollect anything else, but it is possible you may find something. Aunt Hackley sends her love, give mine to the girls, and to my dear grandfather. I have this instant received Virginia's letter of the 26th, which, if I have time, I will answer by Papa. Thank her for it, my dearest mother, and believe in the unalterable affection of your daughter, Ellen.
Holy cow. How long do you think it took her to write that letter with a quill pen? <laughs> so long. And it sounds like she does this all the time. I'm just imagining her just like scribbling, scribbling, scribbling. Okay. So where, where do we start? The first paragraph, I guess. She says, my pen, like my tongue, runs faster than is quite compatible with the comfort of my fans. That's the quote that made me laugh out loud. I know. What do you think? She talks a lot? She pontificates or... This, this tells you a lot about what her personality is like. I think she's a bit of a chatterbox, but I think she's very clever. I think she just has a lot to say. But she's complaining that um, nobody's writing her back, and we can all relate to that. Ten letters in three weeks does seem a touch excessive. <laughs> I looked on Monticellos.org because family letters are transcribed. And they have transcribed 171 of Ellen's letters. So she's prolific. Oh. Then, you know, her sister's maybe 30 or 40 letters. And her brother, two, two letters. What's, are the young men not writing letters or nobody's saving their letters? Well, that, that's what always strikes me as funny. It's like, I know there's brothers, but I don't know them at all because I don't, their letters haven't survived or they didn't write as many. But even in this, when, at the end, she says, say hello to the girls. She doesn't say, like, say hello to my brothers. <laughs> Like there was a little female ecosystem at Monticello. There definitely was. <laughs> and I also like when she says she sent out all of all of these letters with things that could interest or even not interest. And yet I get no credit for my exertions. <laughs> so she's still getting scolded for not writing. And she's been writing so much. That would be frustrating. I feel her pain. So then she's visiting Aunt Hackley's school. I, before this letter, was not familiar with her Aunt Hackley. Did you know anything about her before this one? No, but I learned a little bit about her from, believe it or not, this book by Alan Taylor, a pretty new book called Thomas Jefferson's Education had quite a bit about Aunt Hackley. Interesting. Here, here, And of course, she was the sister of Thomas Mann Randolph, so of Ellen's father. And she married this merchant called Richard Hackley. And this is what Alan Taylor says about him, quote, charming but dishonest and soon bankrupt. When he lingered in Spain with a mistress, Anne Hackley supported herself by opening a fashionable school for girls. Oh my gosh. She <laughs> had to be quite creative and industrious because her husband's not, not a lot of help. I had no idea. Of course, Ellen wouldn't mention that in the letter because I'm sure everybody knows, but there's always these scandalous little stories once you dig in. This is kind of an aside, but in preparing to talk to you, I just sort of leafed through Ellen Randolph Coolidge as a buried woman years later spends time in uh, almost a year in England because of her husband's job. And in her journal, when, when they finally sail home and she's missed her children dearly because she left four out of five of them back in America, she says, we landed at the quarantine ground in Staten Island the afternoon of Tuesday, 14 May. We found our dear daughter well under the kind care of her and my good aunt, Mrs. Hackley. So this is many years later. It's got to be the same aunt. She's living in Staten Island, New York. No idea what you're over there. Her, her school must have closed. Um, maybe her husband finally came home. I don't know. I mean, she's part of Virginia society. She's a Randolph. This is a fairly powerful family in Virginia, but I know they, they struggled with debt. But her husband abandons her, and she has to open a school to support herself. And then she's getting visits from... Thomas Jefferson's grandkids. And what, what an interesting place in society to be, right? Yeah. <laughs> and some of her sisters are in similar circumstances. So that Thomas Mann Randolph has some really 
strong characters and these sisters. And I guess they're kind of role models for Ellen and her sisters. I don't know, because all they want to do is get married, (laughs) find a man and get married. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, that's the the position you're stuck in as a woman at this time is like, well, you've got to get married, but then it's such a gamble of how it's going to turn out. I wondered when Martha is writing about what the school is like, where she says to answer your questions about the school or about the scholars, I wonder if Martha is remembering her own childhood at a boarding school and about her own little adventures and misbehaviors with her friends at this boarding school when she's asking Ellen, did did you get that impression at all? Yeah, I'm sure she was thinking back on that because in some ways, I think those were the happiest years of her life. She was, I guess, 12, 12 through 17, something like that, teenager. And um, you know the story, Katie, of when she came home one weekend, her father had a house on the Champs-Élysées, and she came home and uh, let him know she'd made a big decision to become a nun, (laughs) because school. she she was at a Catholic boarding school. And so you know what her father does almost immediately, he pulls her out of that school. (laughs) Apparently, she starts going to parties at Versailles. (laughs) But... All her life, you're right. She spoke to her daughters about her her time at that French boarding school and how happy she was. And no sooner does she sail home, she's still 17. A couple months later, she's married to her third cousin she barely knows. And he turns out to be a very difficult guy. There are quotes talking about, you know, if somebody has a bad temper, it's the Randolph side of the family showing right. up. Right, a case of the Randolphs if you're in a bad mood. <laughs> The, her little description of what schoolgirls are like too, where she says, enter into their sports or take part in the chit chat, which amuses them. I just like. I think they're just kind of shy around her because she's, you know, she's a lot older. She's a grown woman and she's the granddaughter of the former president. I mean, I imagine if, you know, Jenna Bush or Sasha Obama showed up at a boarding school, the girls would feel a little shy around them too. Yeah, you're right. She claims to have, you know, nothing in common with them. And I don't know. She was she was so brilliant when she was their age. You know, she was reading in Greek and Latin and Don Quixote and Spanish, et cetera, et cetera, and conversing with her intellectual grandfather about these books. It's a high bar, Ellen said. And she says, uh, you know, the want of subjects for conversation. They don't read any books. I'm like, oh, <laughs> Ellen. <laughs> Classic Ellen. I thought it was interesting that she describes her aunt as presiding over the school with power and she underlines the word power because that's not necessarily a good female quality at this time, but she's definitely writing about it as a compliment. Right. What is she called? She has a genius for government, which has always distinguished her. Since from her sickbed, she maintains an exactness of discipline, which others would find difficult in full health and spirits. So I'm kind of intimidated by her. <laughs> I don't know about you. <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> That's impressive. And when I first read that, I assumed she must be sort of an older woman, but she's only 36 at this point. So I think that's interesting. I do too. I flash back though to my terror. I When I was an adolescent, I was in a Catholic school run by nuns, you know, in full habit. And I have no doubt that they were very nice women, but they were terrifying. And our sister principal, Sister Marstella, she could give, just give me the look. And I'd pretty much stop breathing. This is, I'm, this is how I'm picturing Aunt, Aunt Hackley. You know, when she's 
at home with Ellen having a cup of tea. She's she's wonderful. She's maternal, but she she had that that something that certain um, people in authority have that they with very little effort they keep you in control. You know what I'm saying? I was yeah, public school kid. It was just chaos. <laughs> But then she starts talking about all the assistants, and that's when she gets pretty gossipy, pretty juicy. Yeah, and she opens it beautifully. <laughs> Among the girls, I see no one whose society would be of much value. <laughs> what, what value? Why does she need them to be valued to her? By the way, what is she doing in Richmond? She seems to go there often, and she talks about the people there as being, you know, pretty stupid and uninteresting compared to the people at Monticello. My understanding is that like sort of like the Christmas and like New Year season is kind of the social season in Richmond. When she says Virginia Heth is an insipid beauty, is this lifeless in her manner sinner person is one of my favorites in yeah. this paragraph. I don't just just tears Virginia Heth to shreds in one sentence and then just moves on. You know, if Ellen were alive today and still and living in the South, would I I'm you're from Ohio, right? I'm from New York, yeah. but I have learned from women in Virginia, you can pretty much say anything about anybody if you just add three little words. Do you know what those words are? Bless her heart. Bless her heart. <laughs> I, I had to learn that too. I learned that from the guides. I mean, if she said, Virginia hath an insipid beauty as is lifeless in her manners as in her person, bless her heart. See how it changes it? And her complaining about Eliza Woodward as being a saint as being too pious. That's interesting to read, particularly for this time period, because, you know, that you sort of have this idea of women in the 1800s as being very sweet and pious and all of that. And then there's Ellen just like making fun of this boring person for being too religious. And she's afraid to say what she means with her because she doesn't want to mingle strange fires with the fires of heaven. So she's sort of like exasperated with this woman who doesn't seem to have any interest in the good things of this world. Right. Ellen is is not that good 18th century woman. She's a little bit, she she does want the good life. Right. A little bit of the devil in her, I guess. It's Eliza's a, a goody two-shoes and I guess no fun, really. Um, she calls Martha the third sister. She should have pronounced her hopelessly stupid or sullen, but I am told she is neither. So how to account for her obstinate and unamiable silence? I know not. Bless her heart. <laughs> she shows no mercy, that's for sure. In that next paragraph where she talks about, she said, I went the other day to Colonel Nicholas's. So she complains a lot about when society is not very good, but she says this time it was a gay party and a pleasant walk. And so she decided to stay where she was. And then when she said, I counted on Captain Peyton's attendance, but he not knowing the, the need in which I stood of his services went away early. So I think she's flirting with Captain Peyton. Yes, I think there's a good chance of that. This is Bernard Peyton. Uh, he was a prominent Richmond merchant and was at this point the adjutant general of the Virginia militia. I assume he was a bachelor. <laughs> With him and Francis Gilmer and Colonel Robert Nicholas, it seems like some of these people hadn't been involved in the military during the War of 1812. Um, so if you're comparing it to Pride and Prejudice, as I do so often, yes. <laughs> they're sort of like the military men in town, but it'd be militia. But he leaves. The guy that she's interested in leaves early and she's stuck because she can't walk home by herself at 10 o'clock. Oh my God. Like imagine even just walking home with one man at 10 o'clock by herself. I think she paints the picture pretty well that she's in a little bit of a tense situation, but she has to pick either Francis Gilmer or Colonel Robert 
Nicholas. Mm -hmm. So I don't know much about either of these men. (laughs) Yeah. And she picks Gilmer because she's known him since she was a child. All right. So who is Francis Gilmer? He's the son of a good friend of Jefferson's, Dr. Uh, George Gilmer, a physician, a Revolutionary War soldier, and a good friend of Jefferson's. But they, they had a plantation in Charlottesville called Penn Park. And I live, my neighborhood is not half a mile from Penn Park. So my friends and I walk there all the time. So the house is long gone, but it is now uh, obviously a park and a golf course. <laughs> the Gilmer Cemetery is actually on the golf course. What? <laughs> yes, it's somewhat protected, but it's really, it's between two fairways. So we've poked around uh, that, that graveyard often. And I learned a lot about Francis Gilmer, again, in Alan Taylor's book, Thomas Jefferson's Education. He has a whole section on the Gilmers and the relationship between Francis and Ellen Randolph. Because by the age of 10, young Francis was an orphan. His father had died. His mother had died. The family fortunes collapse. And he has a guardian he doesn't like at all. But he spends a lot of time living at Monticello. And Martha Randolph is maternal toward him. And he was kind of a a sickly kid and very short in stature. But he was brilliant. And Jefferson, let me see if I can find what Jefferson says about him. He says, in the vast dearth of scientific education in our state, he, Francis, presents almost the solitary object known to me as eminent in genius and science and industry and excellent disposition, which he got that wrong. He got that wrong. And I'll tell you why that last (laughs) part. (laughs) Francis Gilmer, who is, you know, not living with his family. He, he longs to be a part of the Monticello family. He says, the only persons who began early to make me believe I was born for more than a drudge were the Monticello dynasty. He really wants, he really doesn't feel like he belongs anywhere else. And Ellen is a few years younger than Francis, but they kind of grow up together. And when she was only 11, he says, she told everyone how devoted she was to me. And he's infatuated in love with her, as a matter of fact. When she's a few years older, she rejects his attentions. It's unrequited love. He's jilted at a young age by Ellen Randolph, and he never, ever forgives her. And for the rest of his life, till he dies at age 35, he writes horribly disparaging things about, he called her that evil genius. Yes. In fact, a couple of years after this incident where he walked her home from Richmond, he wrote to his friend Dabney Carr these lines describing Ellen as, quote, cold as a cucumber, hard as stone, dry as a stick. And she has no idea that people are made for any other purpose than to be her vassals and to content themselves with admiring her at a distance. And here's my favorite line. He says, she holds her head as if she never looked lower than the Milky Way. (laughs) He blames her for being a bachelor all his life. She she ruined him forever. And whereas she she describes, she is walked home that night in Richmond by Frances Gilmer. And she says, I begin to think time has removed every feeling even of resentment or that at any rate, if he has unfriendly feelings toward me, 
they are rather passive than active. Okay, that's her description. Here's his description. <laughs> he writes to a friend, Miss E.R., of course, meaning Ellen Randolph. He never calls her by her name again. Miss E.R., to whom be all honor and praise with her accustomed caprice when she found no one of either sex in all of Richmond, even civil to her from her unheard of manners, betook herself to seeking my favor and patronage with a new and unsuspected enthusiasm, I did her some entirely gratuitous and very unmerited favor. She has passed all endurance, and so adieu to her. <laughs> I could go on and on. This guy, for the rest of his life, writes things like that about poor Ellen. He, he predicted she would never get married, and she, and she finally got married a few years later. And he just says um, in a letter, oh yes, the proud Miss Ellen sold off in the decay of her charms to a Yankee cotton jenny man. Oh my God. I was like, excuse you, he is a opium dealer oh, with yeah. a personality defect. So yeah, I mean, we're laughing, but it's really kind of a sad story. My gosh, yeah. yeah. It's interesting to see another perspective of Ellen. And from previous letters I've done of Virginia, it does seem like, from this little social circle that's kind of stuck up at Monticello, I think they sort of have the manners of sort of a French boarding school, hyper educated elite. And then when they go into Richmond for the social season, they're like aliens <laughs> to this society that runs completely differently than they do. That's that's sort of the impression I get after hearing that quote of like, they are down there just sort of viewing all of these peons who like don't even read Latin. <laughs> but meanwhile, everyone <laughs> in Richmond is like, who are these people? <laughs> yeah, especially for the, the women. Ellen says that I have often thought the life of a student must be the most innocent and happy in the world. If I had been a man with the advantages of early education, I would have been just such a one. Yeah. So I, I feel like almost feel like she's born into the wrong century. Yes. You know, if she were alive today, she'd have her PhD in something <laughs> very erudite subject. What, what do you think her career would have been if she were alive today? I, you know what? I think she'd be an influencer. She definitely would have been an influencer. She would have had millions of followers. Yeah. <laughs> she'd have like an advanced degree in something, something like literature. And, but then she would also, I think, she would have been sort of a social media type because it doesn't matter if the people around you don't fit as long as she can find her internet people that would that would match what she was interested in then ellen would be set that's my take then the next paragraph well so here we get into to larger historical moments for one thing she's talking about her aunt randolph who this is mary jane randolph randolph she was a randolph who married a randolph one of multiple <laughs> Well, that's all there was around. They had a million cousins, right? They're all marrying each other. So this was another aunt. This was an older sister of Ellen's father, Mary Jane Randolph. She was the author of The Virginia Housewife, which is one of the earliest surviving American sort of cookbooks. And so this was a woman who ran a boarding house. So I've heard about this boarding house quite a bit in a lot of different contexts, because a lot of times people think that the Virginia housewife recipes were actually written by Martha Washington, but that's not true. Like they should all, Mary Jane Randolph Randolph gets the credit for those. Um, so I've, I've heard about this, this boarding house quite a bit. And then this letter is the day that she's closing up that boarding house and she's trying to sell all the furniture, but she's doing it during the panic of 1819. 
Oh, when nobody has any money. (laughs) Right. So she's going to, she's not going to get her $5,000 for her furniture. Where does she go? I I don't understand why she's in (sighs) Richmond. Let me see. She has a Wikipedia page. Maybe she goes to Staten Island to live with her sister. (laughs) Yeah, they all go to New York. She, okay. In 1819, they gave up the boarding house and moved to Washington to live with their son, William Beverly Randolph. So she actually moves to Washington, Federal City. um, And there she completes her cookbook. And that's where she publishes the Virginia House. Oh, interesting. I guess she's a widow if she's having to court herself and then move in with her son. But she had a she had a refrigerator. (laughs) (laughs) An icebox, I guess. Yeah, apparently she came up with the idea for a type of ice box with a wooden box within another wooden box with crushed charcoal in between um, and that she used that was described as a refrigerator or something to keep things cold. <laughs> that was something she had in her house. And if she were alive today, she'd have a cooking show, don't you think? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then I guess the, the last thing that I wanted to mention was she says uh, she's going to make presents of her dresses to the servants. So she's asking her mother to send her old dresses so she can give them to the slaves, I guess, that are working at this school. I don't know if that was a common way to sort of tip. It was, it was common to tip slaves in houses that you're staying sort of like with servants, but it's one of those things that I can see somebody hearing and being like, Oh, how you see people weren't so terrible to slaves, but when you yourself are an object like a dress that can be given as a gift, the idea of being given a dress doesn't really alleviate that. They were property, just like their clothes were property. Yeah. Is there anything else that strikes you about particularly relatable or or significant about this letter? Well, you know, just about all of it's relatable. She's complaining about not getting mail. She's kind of gossiping about people she meets. It's stuff we, we might not write down today, but we when we talk with one another, we behave a bit like this. She described a party she went to and how Aunt Randolph is having to sell all her things. So yeah, these are very relatable, I think. But finally, I, I wanted to say that having reread Ellen's, or not reread it, but page through it at least, her, her diary the other day, in the end, she finally does get married when she's 28. And I think it was a happy marriage, don't you? They were intellectual equals. Today, you might say, you know, soulmates kind of thing. But really, by everything she writes after leaving Monticello, the pinnacle of her life was her her years living with her grand at her grandfather's house at Monticello. Let me read something to you, which she says. Um, She's married now, but she actually returns to Monticello because her grandfather's died, but they they get there too late. And she tells a biographer about that years later. And she says, I quit the home of my youth never to return. I can never again feel a local attachment. As far as place is concerned, I can never love again. Oh. (laughs) poignant? And she's never really at home in Boston. She's married, you know, as you know, a, a Yankee cotton jenny man. And they live abroad. They live in England. They, she even lives in China, often separated from her children, which makes her very, very sad. And then her sons will fight on the side of the Union. And one of them even dies in a battle in the Civil War. Oh, wow. While her brother is Secretary of War for the Confederacy. 
So um, her life took some interesting twists and turns. And um, but she was such a great observer of life and describer of museums and art and events that took place in London. I would highly recommend if anyone wants to learn a lot more about Ellen to read um, her journal, which she kept for about a year. It's called Thomas Jefferson's Granddaughter in Queen Victoria's England. But you always see there's just this sort of current of nostalgia and sadness running through her letters. So this is this is Ellen in sort of her glory days. Like she's untouchable right now. And then this particular letter, she's 23, her grandfather's alive, her family's all together. And she's really, you you can you get that in this letter, I think. Yeah, exactly right. She's in her glory days when she writes this letter, when she can be critical of everybody. What is it? She never looks below the Milky Way. Yeah, she's she's still looking at the Milky Way. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Dana. This was such a delight. I'm such a big fan of your podcast. So thank you for having me as as a guest. For my listeners, I will provide show notes. I will link to this letter. You can read it online um, and I'll put links to some of these other books that we've been citing and other sources that you can look into. And until we meet again, thank you very much. I am your most obedient and humble servant. In the Course of Human Events is a production of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation. Your Most Obedient and Humble Servant is a production of R2 Studios at the Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media at George Mason University. For more information on this episode, go to monticello.org slash evilgenius, where you'll find related resources and links to the original show.